The thoughts and opinions on Just Some Podcast are of the hosts and guests and do not represent the views of organizations that employ them or they volunteer for. They are also not responsible for spontaneous black holes or nuclear wars that may occur. You have been warned. You're listening to Just Some Podcasts, and here's your hosts, Ben and Tom. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Just Some Podcasts for Advanced Practitioners. This is Tom. And I'm Ben. And today we are here for episode five to talk about autism. Episode five. Little did I know we would make it this far. Yeah, again, you know, I don't know that uh, I necessarily thought we would either, but hey, we're here for the long haul. We're going to be doing the same conversation at like episode 600. So you can either get on the uh, Just Some Podcast train or we're just going to leave you at the station. You know what I'm saying? Doot, doot. Anyway, Tom, hey, how was your week, bud? So far, uh, I shouldn't say so far, I guess I just worked my Friday. Like I said, I work a split shift. It was a very busy week. I am still shocked and surprised at how much of my job could possibly be done by DayQuil if people would just read the box. Yeah, we had a lot of upper respiratory stuff here going on, too. and Still dealing with a lot of hand, foot, and mouth. And I actually did have the opportunity uh, recently, and after episode four, which was on concussions, had concussion that I had to deal with as well. So we'll see if uh, after this episode I get to deal with some autism. I also had a concussion patient. However, it turned out to be negative. And so I was able to tell the young athlete that they were able to return to sports and continue as normal. So it was pretty satisfying to have some knowledge literally the day after we recorded that episode and go, no, as a matter of fact, you don't have a concussion. We're good to go. I would also like to throw a shout out to Heather for giving us the idea and wanting to hear this episode. So just making sure everybody knows that when you do reach out to us, we do try to interact as much as possible with everybody on all our social medias. And if you give us a topic or you talk back and forth with us, we will indeed try to fit it into the schedule. And since you mentioned social media, we'll go ahead and give those out for you again. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all at Just Some Podcast. You can also reach us on our website at www.justsomepodcast.com, or you can email us at admin at justsomepodcast.com. It's still also hard to believe that we are the admin of anything. Like, who would possibly let us do this? Well, we did, so, yeah. Well, we did. And before we get into stories we missed, I also want to let everybody know, if you have been listening since episode one, or if you haven't, go back and catch up. Let you guys know that we do conduct all of this ourselves, so we are trying out some new technology tonight to improve our listening experience based off a recommendation, again, from EM Over Easy Crew. Thanks again, guys. And we're trying some uh, new podcast technology, so we hope you guys enjoy this, and hopefully we give Kyle, the regional sound engineer, a real run for his money tonight. Well, if this new technology works out well, we may just have to replace him completely. He may be on the unemployment line he may be on the unemployment line. However, we've been kicking around the thoughts for some special episodes. And if one of those involves uh, drinking, 
we're going to see just how many times he can hit that sensor beep. Oh, you mean this one? Yeah, we're going to wear that button out. Well, how about we get into stories that you may have missed? Lead the way, sir. All right, so this is the story. It was published in July of this year. And Tom, who doesn't like a good sex story, right? Who doesn't like a good sex story is the question. So there was an actual study done in regards to a man's alcohol intake and how viable his semen are. Mine are always viable, just saying. And what they found out in this small study, and I say small not as a phallic reference, but a small study of about 323 men found that if they drink about four to seven alcoholic drinks per week, that their semen volume was higher and also the total sperm count was higher. And it was a U-shaped trend, so if it was zero to three, or if it was greater than eight, that was decreased. So for that four to seven is that sweet spot for anybody who's wanting to uh, increase in fertility or talk to your patients about increasing their fertility. Also, little known fact, if you have the other partner also take four to seven drinks, you're going to increase your chance of uh, making a baby. Just throwing that out there. I got nothing to add to that one. That was great. Yeah, I'm just saying, you get that four to six uh, Jack Daniel shots in you, you're hitting Tom level. I'm just, but you got to do it quick. All right, you can't, you can't baby that out over a couple hours. Put them all together. Just make it a quadruple. Um, yeah, having done that before, I will tell you, it ends with your face on the bathroom wall while you're trying to use a urinal. Just saying, make sure you, uh, been drinking some, uh, vitamin C. Or you end up, uh, behind the bar vomiting your shoes up because I've been there before. I was going to say, I don't know what story you have been told, but that is all alleged until proven otherwise. Absolutely. I know we, we've been a little light, and uh, we discussed it before that we wanted to try and keep things light because autism is a very serious topic. We take it very seriously, and we just want to make sure that everyone's aware that throughout the podcast, if we are bantering back and forth, that in no way, shape, or form indicates that we are not taking the subject matter or the people diagnosed with autism in any way. We're not taking the subject matter lightly. And I will say... In some circles, autism is going to be one of those hot-button topics that maybe people don't want to talk about. You and I, we're not afraid to talk about this. We'll talk about this. We're going to do a vaccine episode. We're going to do probably an essential oils episode also. We're not afraid to take on those controversial topics that they may not approach elsewhere. True, and I think while we're not afraid, I just wanted to make sure that everybody else was aware that if we laugh during this episode, in no way does that mean we're not being serious. However, if they have been listening or they actually know us, the idea of thinking that we're taking anything serious in a mean way is kind of difficult to understand. Well, Tom, why don't you kick us off into this episode, episode five on autism. One of the first things that I like to do, especially when I'm researching or looking at any topic, is make sure that we are all on the same page about what the the actual subject matter is. A couple things. Uh, the new definition or the new term for autism is actually autism spectrum disorder or ASD. So throughout the entire podcast, or I should say episode, if you hear us refer to autism, ASD, or any of that, it's all together under one umbrella term. Basically, the autism spectrum disorder uh, is characterized by difficulty with social communication and restricted 
restricted repetitive patterns of behavior, interest, or activities. The DSM-5 created the umbrella diagnosis that includes several previously separate conditions, including autistic disorder, Asperger's syndrome, childhood disintegrative disorder, and pervasive developmental disorder not otherwise specified. So basically what it sounds like you're saying there, Tom, is that may be why we're seeing such an increased prevalence in ASD. Yeah, as a matter of fact, shout out to the people that wrote uh, one of the main articles that I'm going to use as a reference tool for this, which is going to be Commander Sanchak and Lieutenant Thomas of the United States Navy at both Jacksonville and Pensacola Naval Hospitals. Go Navy. By the way, I don't want my parents who are Army officers to hear me say that. Just want to make sure every, they get the proper credit and do where it's going for. But they also wrote that there is an increase in the ASD prevalence, and it may be partially attributed to the evolving diagnostic criteria prior to the publication in the DSM-5. And the increased social awareness, the availability of treatments, our ability to put all these criteria together have raised our documented cases of, cases of ASD. So basically, we've expanded the umbrella to which the diagnosis of ASD is, and therefore, just based on that alone, along with the increased awareness, there's going to be more cases. Anytime that you expand that umbrella out to include other disorders, you're going to have more cases of it. That does leave some people looking for that way to explain it, and... You know, as we kind of referenced in one of the earlier episodes, the whole Jenny McCarthy thing with as far as vaccines causing autism, which has been proven time and time again to be false. But it's not so much, hey, why are we seeing all these increased cases of autism? But it's more, hey, the reason that we're seeing these is because it's a bigger umbrella. We're casting a bigger net. Exactly. To not, you know, again, to not make light of anything, but, you know, when the NFL expanded NFL teams, we had more NFL players. It wasn't because some special magic condition or smoking cigars causes problems. When you increase the number of diagnoses that are under the umbrella, the umbrella is going to have to get bigger. So we're just trying to make sure people are aware when people come to you and say, hey, I read or Dr. Google says, no, the DSM-5 is pretty clear. We created an umbrella term. We are recognizing it more. We have more evaluation tools, which we're going to cover here shortly. That is what is making the increase in ASD uh, diagnosis. So please make sure if your parent or your patients want to talk to you about this or friends or family, whoever, make sure that you know that we have vaccines are nowhere in this realm and no articles I found could reference anything other than that's false. And it's all leading back to the same thing. When you create more diagnoses, you're going to get more patients. Tom, I got I to give you credit for that. That, F, that NFL expansion uh, idea. Analogy. <laughs> that NFL expansion analogy. That was pretty spot on. I kind of like that one. I'm, I'm going to give you credit for that one. <laughs> well, I'm a little happy with the NFL right now. Uh, my Cleveland Browns, uh, they've won a game. I just want to point that out to everybody. But you didn't get any of the free beer, did you? No. It's still in Cleveland, so I wasn't going to go up there. I'm just saying, if you've never been to Cleveland, it's a lovely town from a distance. So some of the new things uh, that are... The, the newest article that I am referencing is the end of 2016. And there's a couple new things that we want to make sure that people are aware of 
that they have ascertained in all the studies that they've done on ASD. And the first is in 2014, an agency for the Healthcare Research and Quality and Quality Systematic Review found a growing body of evidence that an applied behavior analysis based early intensive behavioral intervention, say that fast, delivered over an extended time frame, improves both the cognitive ability, language, and adaptive skills in autistic children. So early identification as with almost all of our other treatments, diagnosis, etc., is going to lead to better outcomes. One of the other interesting things that I also saw in some of the research I did is that they found in 80% of the patients with ASD, even with repeated testing, they may improve some of their cognitive skills, etc., but over an 8 to 10 year time interval, they retained the same level that they were initially screened at. So there are three levels, and of course, we're going to talk about it in a second, but if they come in at a level two, they might be able to improve their ability, but no matter what testing they do, they will almost always stay at that level. Okay, Tom. So there was an agency that, what was that agency? I'm sorry. What was the agency that uh, produced that? This uh, was, well, it's technically through the American Association of Family Practitioners is the organization, but it was two naval officers that are physicians uh, at U.S. Navy hospitals that did the research for this main article. Right, but didn't you say that as far as the early detection, what was the agency? Didn't you say the agency? The U.S. Per- the US Preventative Task Force. Thank you. Okay. So the U.S. Preventative Task Force had said uh, that early identification was paramount in, in order to, to catch this early, basically, correct? Paramount to not only catching it early, but we are able to better treat the patient over over the length of time. What it doesn't change is their level of severity. Can you tell me a disease that does not benefit from early detection? No. I mean, like, if you see sepsis at hour two versus sepsis at hour 40, you're going to have a chance for a better outcome and better treatment options at hour two. I didn't write the article. I'm referencing the article. I'm not. I'm not complaining about the article. I'm complaining about the U.S. Task Force saying, "Well, early identification is important and paramount." I get that, and I don't disagree. But we could literally say that about every single disease that we ever talk about. Hypertension, early detection is a paramount. How do you think they keep their job? They made themselves critical in every situation, except for. Drinking and sperm production, boom. Halfway through the drinking phase is when you get the most production. There, I found one. I'm just saying I want that job. So if you're on the U.S. Uh, public task force for that, hit me up because I can write that same statement, I believe. It's like being a weatherman in Hawaii. Like, I can do the five-day forecast right now. I thought that was San Diego. It's nice. 72 and seventy. <laughs> Yeah, same thing as San Diego. Same thing as uh, Hawaii. It's nice. Back to you. So, with early detection for ASD or, you know, I guess for any disease, sometimes we have to do screenings, correct, Tom? Correct. So, one of the screenings, the main screening, I guess I should say, is the MCHAT. And this can actually be found free online. You can download these at mchatscreen.com. Actually, the newest one I saw was not just the MCHAT, the MCHAT RF. Correct. The MCHAT RF. The recommendation is to do this between the ages of about 18 and 30 months. 
This would be a good time during your can be health. Uh, it's not can be healthy is everywhere else. Hey, this is <laughs> that's only in Kansas. <laughs> so the opportune time to do this screening would be during like a well child exam during that phrase, that time phase of 18 to 30 months. Sam and Kyle are going to have their work cut out for them tonight. So the MCHAT RF is a two part screening. The first part is 20 questions and it's a quick yes, no that you give the parents. And lots of times, like in our office, what we do is we give this to them as they're, as my MA is rooming them and getting vital signs because it usually takes me a few minutes to get into the room. So it gives the mom or the dad a chance to fill this out. And so some of the questions are very basic. If you point at something across the room, does your child look at it? Does your child like climbing on things like furniture, playground equipment, stairs and such? And based on those yes, no questions, you can kind of preliminarily put them into a risk category. Basically, if their total score is zero to two, they're low risk. If they're three to seven, it's a medium risk and they recommend administering the second part of the test. And if their score is eight to 20, then they're considered high risk for ASD and it's acceptable to bypass the follow-up and just refer them out immediately. The second portion is a little bit uh, more in-depth, as you would expect, and it's graded on a pass-fail. And just to point out, some of the signs and symptoms may emerge even earlier between 6 and 12 months. The parents are going to be critical, obviously, uh, for some of these cases, unless the parents just don't want to acknowledge that something is going on, and that's a difficult situation that you may have to deal with. But most children with ASD are going to start showing or may have symptoms as early as 6 to 12 months. However, the reason we keep referencing that the 24 to 30 month age group is that many reliable diagnoses are going to be made by this time period. So if you are starting to see those symptoms, by the time they hit three years or younger, you're going to be able to make an, uh, a usually reliable diagnosis. I w- the only thing I would add to that is one of the criteria that they are going to also point out for testing is parental concern. So anytime a parent comes to you with questions, please make sure you take those on board and you take them seriously. Whether you believe that the child is, you know, oh, they babble too much. Well, maybe the kid just babbles and that's fine. But when the parents come to you with a concern, you need to make sure that you are acting upon those concerns because the sooner we get them into an interdisciplinary team, the the sooner we can get them treatment. And the screening itself is still kind of up in the air, right, Tom? I mean, some agencies recommend it for all children. Some don't. Isn't that what we were reading? Yeah. uh, As a matter of fact, that's one of the things uh, Ben and I were speaking about just prior to the episode was we know physicians that they, nope, we're going to do it on every child during their well check, 18 to 24 months. Versus some of the recommendations that I found in research says only do it unless only do it if you are starting to see symptoms or there's parental concern. So all of us as advanced practitioners, nurse practitioners, PAs, whoever, uh, we're going to have to do some collaboration with who we have in our office or who we might be doing future referrals to and say, hey, what do we want to see or what do we want to do in those cases so that we can improve our care of these patients? And if you make the determination that you want to screen everybody, you're certainly not going to 
fault or no one's going to fault you. You're not going to hurt anybody by doing this screening. You know, the American Academy of Pediatrics is the one who recommends screening all children. And I do believe with the improved MCHAT RF that we are seeing less uh, concern for like a false, false risk for diagnosing. Yeah. And I, I, in research, that's one of the things I found. That's why they developed the MCHAT RF is the original MCHAT they were doing it on everybody and they were getting such a high number of false positives that everybody involved said, we have to do a reevaluation. And during that reevaluation is when they came up with this two part process to become more accurate, which I, everybody should applaud them for. They recognized an error in the system and they fixed it, which is exactly what they should be doing. Now it's up to us to use the improved tools that they're giving us. Moving along some of the diagnostic criteria for ASD are going to be persistent deficits and social communication and social interaction. One of the things I, I was just thinking about though to myself while we were, while I was doing this research is it's going to be very key to make sure we use these tools for diagnosis because that is such a subjective term or manner. Like is the kid awkward or is he awkward because of ASD? So being objective and using your thorough diagnostic tools is going to be really important, especially for us as nurse practitioners and PAs. We, we really got to be on top of our game for this. So what's some other criteria that we may want to look at as far as, hey, if we're not screening everybody, maybe we need to look at potentially screening this child. Well, some of the things are, like I said before, are going to be the persistent uh, social issues when when the child interacts with other people. Are they uh, keeping so, uh, certain norms to themselves? Like when other children when other children speak to them or adults, uh, when anybody else is speaking to them, are they interacting normally? Are they making eye contact? Some of the bigger things that it would be easier objectively to observe. And one of the big things I've saw repeatedly in the research is going to be uh, restricted or repetitive patterns of behavior. So things like repetitive motor movements, use of objects or speech, insistence on sameness, which is a phrase I really liked for the subject matter, actually. When you change their course of action, are they going to throw a tantrum? Are they going to go berserk because they are not getting to do what they feel comfortable with? And I think that should be a big tip off for a lot of people. In reference to that, you could even look at coming to the office for a checkup is going to definitely be outside of their norm. And it's not something they do every day. So you could potentially have some concerns with that there. Yeah, exactly. Or let's say the child wants to wear headphones. And that kid wants to wear headphones. He likes wearing headphones. Well, you got to examine his ears. You move those headphones, so, something's going to happen. The kid's not going to let you. He's going to fight you. He's going to start screaming. That should possibly be a tip-off that perhaps, and if the parents say, oh, it's today, well, then it's just today. But if the parents say, yeah, for like the last six months, he has held on to this teddy bear, uh, this fire truck. He's wore these headphones or whatever. And if you try and move them or take them away from him, he throws a fit. If it's a repetitive pattern over a period of time that you can define, perhaps you need to start looking into it. Fixed interest, uh, abnormal intensity of focus, which is another phrase I really liked. Like when they start putting together a puzzle, they're not going to move. That should be possibly something you should be paying attention to. And 
hyper reactivity to sensory input, which is something I've actually seen in some children before. Loud noises freak them out. Bright, you know, lights, flashing colors, whatever. If if it changes, if it they are so hyper aware of their senses that suddenly it becomes painful or uncomfortable for them to use, that might be a tip off. Yeah, I actually seen a child in the office and it was the air return from the air vents was too loud. And so it was setting him off because he could hear that. Well, and and I have never seen something quite that sensitive, though. That that should possibly be a, a pretty good tip off if they say, yeah, every time that happens, loud noises is the one I have seen repeatedly in children anywhere on the spectrum is they just don't deal with it. A fire truck goes by, they can't go to parades, etc. You know, it, it really drives them them. Uh, it makes them upset that they're having to deal with that. And so we as professionals should start recognizing if the parents are bringing that up, you, you need to put that in your toolkit and start saying, okay, do, what do we have here? So once we've started to decide what we're going to do, we're going to start using our tools. Some of the things that we need to know is what level of ASD are we dealing with? And so whether you are part of the the diagnosis and uh, assigning a level or whether you're dealing with the interdisciplinary team that has assigned a level, you should know these levels so that you can help better take care of your patient. So, Tom, you're saying that there are different levels of autism. So what are those exactly? So the, the three levels of ASD are going to be level one, which indicates requiring support. Level two, which is requiring substantial support, and level three, which is requiring very substantial uh, support. So level one, um, you may have some programs or helping in place, but they may have noticeable impairments. However, they are able to live on their own and make socially acceptable calculations when dealing with other people. Level two is going to have marked deficits in verbal and nonverbal social communication. This is where we're going to start seeing the severe inability to communicate. Now, I don't want anybody to mistake that with inability to speak. They'll be able to talk to you, but they may not be able to communicate with you. You may ask them a question and then you're going to get an answer to something completely different or whatever they're thinking about at that point in time. So making sure that you are, are aware of their responses or you are with somebody that deals with them regularly, one of their support personnel may help you with their treatment. Level three is going to be severe deficits, and it's going to have severe impairments in their functioning. Uh, like one of the things that I learned about with like levels two and three, and this is not specific to any one level, but it's something you may see, is called echolalia, and I am sorry if I am butchering that name. So what, what is echolalia, Tom? So echolalia is used as a primary source of language uh, once they've passed the two to three year mark. And in essence, the best way for you as a provider to remember all this is it is exactly what it sounds. They are echoing. If anybody has seen the movie Rain Man, you know, there's a scene where Dustin Hoffman keeps repeating what he hears on the radio. 97X. 97X. Bam. The future, the future rock of rock and roll. Yeah, I, I think it's one of those iconic things that if you have ever seen the movie, 
you're gonna you're gonna know exactly what we're talking about. And I have also witnessed this with friends and 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 children that have ASD. And not only can some of them just exactly mimic language, but they can actually start. Some of them, as they grow older, can start to modulate their voice and start sounding like what they're they're repeating as they repeat it more often and more often. And if you've not seen the movie Rain Man, you need to go watch it. It's a classic. Dustin Hoffman, Tom Cruise, great movie. But when you and I were talking about this offline and you mentioned that as far as the echolalia and the Rain Man, that clicked. And sometimes for providers, that's what we need is that thing that we can remember. Oh, I may not remember exactly what that is, but here's this memory device of, oh, yeah, Rain Man. That's what that is. Exactly. And, and that's one of the reasons, like I said earlier, we don't want anybody to think we're laughing at the subject, but certainly that's an iconic scene that is very funny in the movie. But when you see it and you hear Dustin Hoffman saying that repeatedly to Tom Cruise, you're going to know what we're talking about. And by the way, if you haven't seen it, what are you doing? Like, are you 12? Go out and see it. That's like I had someone tell me the other day they hadn't seen Top Gun. Who? Who hasn't seen Top Gun? And if you haven't seen Top Gun, what are you doing with your life? Seriously, that is like the foundation of my entire philosophy of how I act. And this is where we're going to get the email saying, well, I'm a student in my nurse practitioner or my PA school, and I don't have time for movies. But you know what? Hey, these movies are from like the 80s, so you should have watched them already. Yeah, and if you're that young, why are you already in NP school? Do something. Get some life experience. Whatever you're doing, though, I swear to goodness, the next time I hear someone tell me to my face and actually mean it that they've never seen Top Gun, I'm going to lose my shit. It's just done. Like, if I say negative Ghost Rider, the pattern is full, you better know what I'm talking about. Because someone actually said that back to me the other day. And they hadn't seen the movie. And I was like, you're banned. You can no longer use that phrase. Until you know what buzz in the tower is, asshole, you can't say that to me. Who would have thought that in this episode we would have had a Tom rant about Top Gun? It's always possible. I told you, the Tomness is a powerful weapon, my friend. So, getting back to the Kyle the Engineer and Sam the Fact Checker are all up, blah, 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 blah got to do the episode. Okay, so let's, let's get this back on track here. So, some of the clinical probes or things that you should be paying attention to that are objective signs that, as a clinician, you may want to pay attention to for autism surveillance. Like, uh, starting at the young age of nine months, turning and making eye contact when hearing their name or, or any basic noise that they should be recognizing as their name. Like, they should start developing that social interaction or at least acknowledgement that they are being communicated with. After that, it's going to progress to the 12-month age, which is also, it's, it's very much the same thing. Repeat social orienting that they should have started picking up at nine. So not only should they be making eye contact, but if you or the parent are, hey, look at the bunny, and you're showing them a bunny, they should be acknowledging the bunny. Like, they should make eye contact with you, and they should be identifying the bunny. Again, there's that social impairment or lack of cognition of communication, which is really the key, the basis of what we're trying to get across when they're, they're lacking that skill. 
at 15 months, they're going to start having joint attention. So when they see the bunny the next time, and by the way, you don't have to have a bunny. I'm just using a bunny for an example. <laughs> but if you got the bunny out and you've been pointing at the bunny, they should probably start pointing at the bunny as well. And then 18 months, it's uh, much the same thing. Like if you're playing with the bunny, they should start making eye contact with you and they should want to start engaging and playing with the bunny as well. And then moving on to the 24 month period, they should be engaging in declarative pointing and showing of objects. So now they're picking up the bunny and trying to show it to you. These are all things that they should be doing. And that doesn't mean if the kid picks up the bunny and he just starts playing with it or she, whoever, that doesn't mean that we need to do an M chat on them. It just means like, Hey, if the parents like, yeah, he always plays with his bunny and he won't play with his brothers and sisters, or I can't get him to, to make contact with me. And you know, they're 24 to 30 months old. Perhaps we need to start having a conversation of what other behaviors they're having. Hey Tom, what if they're allergic to bunny rabbits? Then use a fire truck. All right. I'm just saying, just find something. Okay. And by the way, not that we've had too many of these, but let me get on this rant for a minute. If you send me an email saying that, you're going to get fired back on. I'm just throwing that out there, okay? Because if you are telling me you are a practitioner or a physician's assistant and you can't figure out to use a fire truck if they don't like bunnies, then what the hell are you doing taking care of patients? I'm just saying. Like, at what point did common sense leave our training mode? There's a lot that I can say to that uh, in regards to the current political landscape and common sense, but we're going to leave that alone, and let's just move on to the, the next part of your talk, Tom. <laughs> well, we're definitely going to be visiting that in an episode, and I'll tell you right now, that might be the drunk episode. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to get that sperm count up, you know what I'm saying, the four to six shot range, and then we're going to have a good old speech about people and their lack of ability to help take care of patients, but... Nonetheless, some of the conditions uh, that you're going to see associated with the autism spectrum disorder. So this is going to be a wide range. So again, um, and I, I think I covered this at the beginning, but we're going to, we're kind of glossing over the major detail, major details. Oh, 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 where are you at, Sam? Some of the major facets of the ASD is what we're trying to get across to people in this episode. If you guys want specific information, then make sure you reach out to us and let us know, hey, I want to know about, more about Asperger's, etc. And we'll try and do that. But some of the conditions you're going to see associated are psychiatric conditions. There's a high prevalence of anxiety and ADHD and depression associated with autism. Uh, motor impairments, which actually is the only condition associated with uh, autism that you will actually see an improvement with treatment. 51% of patients that are going to be afflicted with ASD are going to have motor impairment problems, uh, such as apraxia, clumsiness, toe walking, and gross motor delays. With an interdisciplinary team working with those patients, you will actually see a decrease to less than 30% most of the time. So that is one of the tangible uh, benefits Intellectual disabilities are going to affect 20 to 50% of patients. Epilepsy, not very high. It's as high as 26%, but most of the studies I saw were in the lower 15 to 12 range. This is the one that gets me, Ben. I know we talked about this before. What's that? 
talk about accuracy in yeah in reporting here gastrointestinal problems related to autism anywhere between nine to ninety one percent nine to ninety one percent glad they narrowed it down for you yeah they narrowed it down from nobody to everybody thank you for that one never mind the fact let's be fair anytime if you've eaten taco bell after raising your sperm count you're going to have gastrointestinal problems, okay? So that could affect anybody on Earth. Again, like, do they really need to tell us? See, I think that drug companies should start using that to come in when the drug reps come by and talk to us about the the latest and greatest medication. Well, you know, GI symptoms, uh, it can happen between 9 and 91% of patients. Well, you know, to be fair, they would probably sell a lot more drugs than starting off their commercials with could cause anal leakage. That's true. Yeah. No one wants that. (laughs) Nobody wants that. Sounds like a bad Saturday night. Hmm. So we covered some of the things that you may see. We've covered some of the things that are going to trigger when you need to be using your MCHAT or your MCHAT RF, I should say. Once you've done that. And really trying to wrap up the end of this episode is unless you are part of this interdisciplinary assessment team, our job is primarily to filter these children to the proper people to get them treatment. So basically that's going to be like in primary care, we may find what we think is highly suspicious for cancer, but we're certainly not going to dictate the treatment for that. We're going to refer them to an oncologist because that's what they do. That's what their specialty is. Exactly. And this is a group of people. And again, this is a loose definition of a team. There can be more people. There can be less people. We're just going to give some of the people that are generally involved in these uh, disciplinary teams. But these are the people that while we went to school for diagnosis and treatment of family medicine, these are the people that specialize in their field. So some of the people you may see on some of these teams are going to include audiologists, uh, developmental pediatricians, child neurologists or physicians, a geneticist or a genetic counselor, occupational therapist, psychiatry, social workers, and speak lang- speech language pathologist, which I clearly need the services of. So from primary care, basically, we're going to do that screening or we're going to have suspicions that, hey, we may be dealing with a patient somewhere on the spectrum of autism. And then we're going to make that referral out like in our area, Children's Mercies, where we use a lot because they do have that inter- interdisciplinary team. See, your your speech is rubbing off on me tonight, apparently. Kyle's fault. He's jacking with my mic. But, Ben, and, and honestly, I am still a fairly new nurse practitioner. I shouldn't say fairly new. I am still a new nurse practitioner. What is your experience with having maybe not this specific or this specific conversation, but what should we be preparing for as advanced practitioners when we are starting to recognize some of these uh, signs and symptoms, can you tell us about taking us through this, how to have this critical conversation with the parents? Yeah, it's not an easy conversation to have. I mean, I don't think uh, any parent wants to think that there's anything wrong with their child. And I don't mean anything as far as mentally. I mean, just anything in general, like you wouldn't want to have this conversation, you know, in regards to, to cancer either. So a lot of it is, in times that I've had this conversation, it's sitting down, being very open, being very honest, trying to answer what questions that I can, and just explaining to them, hey, 
here's some of my concerns. Here's some of the screenings that we've done. Here's some of the abnorm- abnormalities that we're noticing. I would really like to make a referral out to somebody who can fully assess this. Is it autism? It certainly could be. Is it something else? That's certainly a possibility as well. The way that I make that generalization for a family practice, our job is to know a little bit about a lot of things. And a specialist is supposed to know a lot about little things. I'm not here to make that official diagnosis. I'm here to try to find that, refer them out, and try to get them that early detection to start getting into the treatment plans. And and that's the same way I have had conversations with patients, especially uh, with like orthopedic injuries. And I'm trying to explain to them, I'm here to, you know, make the recommendation at this point. Like I'm a big filter. I'm supposed to help catch the things and then move you to the person that's going to be able to best take care of you. And especially in cases, I think like autism and you may or may not agree. I, I certainly think the best thing for us to do is to make sure that we're getting them that early referral, because as we know with everything early referral and detection is going to lead to the best treatment. And it is a difficult conversation. I mean, it truly, truly is. I have not just in my practice, but in in talking to other practitioners, there's a wide spectrum of of parental reactions. You know, some parents are going to be very accepting of it and say, Hey, you know, I appreciate you pointing this out to me. And maybe in the back of their mind, they had this idea that maybe, um, you know what, maybe, maybe there is concerns and you're validating those and you're helping them get that referral that they need. And then there's the complete opposite side where it's, oh, so you're telling me my kid's stupid, my kid's retarded, whatever the case may be, and that's not it at all. It's it's a... <laughs> it's, it's a tough conversation to even talk about having. It would be very similar to saying, oh, your kid's diabetic, but then you don't want to use insulin or something along those lines. Like, we know that there's this concern and there's this problem. And so we need to put the pieces in place to try to help them the best that we can. And again, and I, while I'm new to the nurse practitioner role, I'm not new to having tough conversations. Uh, I was in law enforcement. I was an ER nurse. I was an ICU nurse. I have been part of many difficult conversations being open, honest, and as clinically accurate as possible, not, not guessing at stuff saying, this is what we see. And this is what our suspicions are leading us to is going to be, I think has, has always shown the best outcomes because you don't know what that person is going to do. So the only thing you can truly control in that conversation in my experience is how you are going to approach it. And you want to approach it, like you said, open, honestly, but have that caring and that compassion. I mean, obviously we're talking about their child. No parent probably wants to hear this, but it is, I mean, clearly as we've broadened that umbrella, there's more diagnosis of this. So it's, so it, it is a conversation that probably every provider will have at some point. If their initial reaction is to behave as if this is somehow indicating damage or something is wrong with their child. There are so many tools available to us in, in social media now to point out people that are highly successful 
while being diagnosed with ASD. I can personally say, and I won't give out any personal information, I know a nurse that has Asperger's syndrome, and they are one of the finest nurses I've ever met. So if somebody is trying to tell you or they're reacting in that manner, maybe showing them, uh, I think Ben knows of a a TED Talk with a highly successful uh, person that's been diagnosed with ASD, or there are several examples of people that are successful that perhaps we can kind of say, hey, this is not the end of the road. This is the beginning. Well, and even I think Hollywood is trying to embrace the awareness of autism. I mean, there's a hit television show now out called The Good Doctor, which is dealing with a physician who has Asperger's autism, still functioning as a physician. So I think that that in time will help soften that conversation. The TED Talk that you were actually talking about, and that's kind of what I would I would like to end with because, I mean, it's kind of a happier note because I know, I mean, it, it's obviously it's a tough conversation and you kind of heard me, talk, you know, reference that earlier, but this kid is his name is jacob barnett it's a ted x teen talk it's called forget what you know it's on youtube currently over nine million views and i believe at the time he was about 13 that he did this talk and when he was about two he was diagnosed with moderate to severe autism became completely nonverbal. his parents were told you know your child very well may never talk again may never walk may never tie his shoes they in turn Got him into some treatment plans. Didn't feel that that was working, so worked on some other things with him. Ended up unlocking this amazing mind that was locked away by this autism. By the age of three, he was speaking four languages. By the age of eight, he was sitting in physics classes. By the age of 13, he was a college student. So it was this amazing genius-type mind that was under lock and key of autism, and they were able to get that unlocked. He does reference in the talk, though, that he still can't tie his shoes because he's wearing sandals. So <laughs> It's good to know that I feel a little akin to a genius at this point. Like, hey, I don't like tying my shoes either. So there you go. So if you've not watched the TED Talk, I highly recommend it. We can actually probably throw a link up on our social media for anybody who would like to, to watch it. It's about 18 minutes. Um, we, they actually made us watch it in nurse practitioner school where I went and it's obviously stuck with me over the years. I've watched it several times just by myself listening to it because it's such an amazing message of, Hey, this diagnosis is not life ending. And it's, it, there are ways to move beyond this. And I'd just like to add on to that. Please Ted talk. Don't sue us. So we're just trying to be helpful here. They're not going to sue us. We're referencing them. We're giving them more views by the next time. That we look at this, I mean, we have like 15 listeners. That That's going to be 9 million to 15. Watch out, people. Exactly. We are breaking records. <laughs> so wrapping up tonight's episode, I, again, uh, I'm, I'm glad we covered the subject. Big shout out to Heather. Thank you for the suggestion. Thank you for listening to the show and all the, the great feedback you've given us and the idea for this show. I think it's an important topic. I think it's something that maybe we don't cover enough, especially in training. If you don't see it all the time, you know, maybe not all of us have had a lot of interaction. So I'm glad to get out some information and please, if there are specific facets or aspects of this talk that you want us to dive in deeper, let us know so we can start covering that. And not only that, but if there's anything else that you want us to cover, obviously this was like you said with Heather, 
this was a uh, request. Hey, can you guys cover this? Because this is some good information that, that needs to be put out there. So if there's other things that you want us to cover, let us know. We will take on anything. Pretty soon, though, they're going to have to listen to me talk about my Nobel Peace Prize for identifying the two neurons responsible for Sudoku. So I'm just saying that's still out there. Come on. Come on, counsel. Where's my prize? Yeah. I'm sure it's never coming, so you'll be fine. I feel it any day, just like winning the lottery. I can feel it. I feel it on my bones. It's coming. I know it's coming. In order to win the lottery, you got to play the lottery. So, yeah. I did today, sucker. So, <laughs> so uh, Ben, since you know all the social media by heart, why don't you rattle that off again, please, so that people know where to reach us. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all at Just Some Podcast. We're also on the web at www.justsomepodcast.com. Or you can reach out via email, admin at Just Some Podcast. We also have a group on Facebook, which is the official Just Some Podcast for Advanced Practitioners group. You can reach out to us there directly there. and We do try to get some exclusive content there that we may or may not get out on the actual regular Facebook page. Yeah, Zuckerberg, we're looking at you. So next week, I don't think we got a topic nailed down yet. I know there's several that we're looking at. So we, we do have several that we are still debating. So unless we get a specific request and it's one of the one we already have, uh, I guess everybody will just have to live. All 15 of you will just have to live in suspense until we make a decision. That's right. So let's wrap up episode five. 97X. Bam. The, the future, future of, of rock, rock and roll. So I'm Ben signing off. This is Tom signing off. Have a great week, everybody.